Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Garrett Moore, and he's the founder of Agoras, America's first scalable offsite customized construction solution. And by using software-driven robotics and limiting many of the risks and inefficiencies associated with traditional home building, Agoras is radically transforming the construction industry. He's also an ex-Navy SEAL, and he took the lessons he learned in active duty to build a great company and revolutionize the way America is being built. So Garrett, thank you for being here on the show today. Welcome, and how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Eileen. Thank you so much for asking. And how is lovely San Diego? It's awesome. San Diego doesn't really have a bad time of year. The closest thing is August when you know the weather gets above like 80 degrees <laughs> and the humidity goes above like 70% and we all lose our minds. Like, what happened? So it is the definition of champagne problems or first world problems. First world problems. But it is quite, quite awesome. Well, Garrett, thanks so much for being here today. And can you share with us a little bit more about your background and what your focus is on? Sure. So I actually came to San Diego in a little bit of a, in a kind of roundabout way. I grew up in Arizona, loved playing sports, loved school, got a chance to keep both of those going. So I played football at Stanford, was a quarterback there, realized I didn't have the talent either academically or athletically to do anything in my life. So I said, you know what? I love this team sports environment. Let's go do the military. I want to live a life that matters. I want to pursue something that really moves the needle for society and for humanity. And I want to be a part of a really cool team that does that. And so started to look at military, started to pull on the thread, started to get into special operations. And then eventually I started to meet some, some Navy SEALs. And I was just, I was smitten. I said, this is, this is a really, really fantastic group of young men. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. I don't have the skills or the talent or the toughness, but man, those guys are really cool. And then eventually I just kind of kept coming back to it going, you know what? I will never forgive myself unless I, I take a shot. So put in an application, went to BUDS, made it through BUDS and kind of the rest is history. So uh, multiple deployments, lots of time in the Middle East. Great, great experience. Uh, crash course in leadership, crash course in problem solving, and just a really developmental period for me as, as a young man, a young father, and a young husband. However, it's stressful. And I was on my third kid. So we just had our third and we thought... Stupidly, we thought, oh, now's a good time. You're deployed. Your wife has three young kids at home. Let's build a house because that's going to go really, really well. When so, was this? Uh, this was 2000. Well, it started in 2014 and didn't finish till 2018. Oh, wow. So there were a couple deployments in there, but it was a very, very stressful process. And I think I came in from an outside perspective. I did my undergrad in mechanical engineering, and I think I naively thought, okay, I've been off the grid for the last 12 years. We're landing rockets on the open ocean, and you know, we're curing cancer we figured out construction. So that was not the case, spoiler alert. And I ran into that hard truth headlong and I became very, very kind of disillusioned and frustrated. So I went with, went through six general contractors, eventually I said, screw it. I'm just going to become a general contractor myself. There's not the professionalism, the attention to detail that I would expect from a SEAL platoon or, or from a professional business. And so in that process, I became intimately familiar with some of the pain points of construction and said, this is the next problem that I want to solve. I believe and it's only gotten worse since then. I believe we're on the cusp of a massive housing crisis. I think this is going to be a generational issue. If we do not solve this, there's going to be hell to pay. So this is this is worth it. So got out of the military, 
started to uh, kind of embark on the journey there. That was a long answer to a short question, but kind of a roundabout path to get there, but I wouldn't have it any other way. So you left football to become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> I did. And you know what? In many ways, it's kind of the same thing. It's a bunch of really good people getting together for a common cause and a common purpose. And yes, it's hard. It sucks. And there's a lot of long days, but it's it's worthwhile. In life, the most worthwhile things oftentimes have a component of hardness to them, as well as doing them with people that you respect and care about. When we hear Navy SEAL, there's some absolute level of respect and authority of where that comes from. <laughs> and so give us a quick background or like the biggest thing that you had to take away from it because it's not easy. It's it's a really tough program to be able to become a Navy SEAL. And so how did you condition your mind to get through the entire program and to achieve that Navy SEAL accomplishment? So that's a bit of a controversial question because there's two schools of thought. One is it's the people and, and the way you're raised. And the other the other component is just something that, that can't be quantified. I'm probably a little bit of a centrist in that I think the roots on whether or not you're going to have the stick to to stick it through, I think those roots are laid by your family and your friends and your life experiences long before you show up to San Diego that first day. At the same time, it also boils down to desire. I think anybody could make it through BUDS if they wanted it badly enough. What BUDS does is it forces you to look in the mirror and ask yourself every single day, every single hour, is this really what I want to do? And one of the things that's unique about training is they quickly strip you of whether or not you can do it. No matter how talented you are, everybody can't do it. Then what they're trying to look at is, do you have the extra gear to just not quit or to you know, basically you know, sacrifice your body and die here on the beach? Because that is something that we can work with and teach around. So I think the most enjoyable part about that process was it, it was a refining fire. And you just, you're stripping out all the garbage and all your insecurities and your damage and stuff along the way. And, and really testing yourself saying, do I have what it takes? That's amazing. <laughs> and so Garrett, after you left the Navy SEAL, after you graduated from that, and then you decided to go into construction, how did that kind of happen? And how did that transition from you starting to build out your own home to starting up your own technology construction building company? It was probably an overactive sense of hubris to say, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I have a completely different trade. I can tackle this problem. But it's centered from this idea that I was my day job. I'm working with a really high-functioning, inter-dependent kind of professional sports team, for lack of a better word. And then I'm coming home to a fragmented job site where there's zero teamwork, zero communication and camaraderie. And so the, the genesis was I was like, man, if I just brought my troop or my platoon home with me, I'm sure we could do a better job. We don't even know construction, but because we work as a team, you've got the interconnection, the problem solving, the dynamism there. I said, okay, I think this is solvable. And then as you start to go through, then you see these manual things. You're like, where, where was the software in this? Why was that not pre, pre-designed or pre-configured? And so I think that served as kind of the initial idea. And it planted enough of a seed that I'm like, now I want to, this is the new calling and the new career I want. Then at that point, it became a challenge of, how do you tackle construction? Construction is big, it's fragmented. And from that perspective, we looked at it and said, uh, let me back up and kind of go through the grand history of, of kind of housing in general, because it sets a context for where our passion is as a business and where my passion is. So big picture, American society tends to produce over a historical average, about 1.4 million new households a year. So that's kind of just basic population growth. We need to recycle and retrofit and kind of rebuild probably about another 100 or 200,000 homes. So 
give or take, the metronome to stay on track with society is about 1.6 million homes. Global financial crisis 2008, it plummeted down into like two, three, four hundred thousand, and it stayed there for a while. And so, over the last 14 years of society, we have cumulatively produced a lot less than society has grown. That cumulative debt is now up to north of five and a half million homes. And now that chicken has come home to roost because housing is expensive and it's become a crisis and home ownership is now a challenge. And so the, the problem is, to give you a sense of this scope, in order to solve that, we would need the top 100 largest builders in the country to all double their capacity for 10 years to catch up. That's not in the cards, or at least that's not in the cards with the current labor, current technology, current supply chain. And so when we look at this big problem, when you pull the thread on housing, you see effects on socioeconomics, you see effects on uh, fertility, you see effects on carbon emissions from increased distances of commuting. Like there are, and, and I'm overstating it a little bit, but housing is so central to the American economy and to cost of living for most people. The effect on this is very, very widespread. And so with that as the backdrop, our mission as a company is to solve this problem through cutting edge technology and a vertically integrated special operations type mindset. So walk us through that a little bit, because how does technology and what you're doing, how does that translate into making more homes and helping to offset this $5.5 million deficit or $5.5 million homes deficit? Yeah. So the other event that's happening concurrently is there's an existential change in the nature of the construction labor force. And this doesn't come as a surprise to to most of your listeners, but 2008, there was no work. So there was a mass exodus from the trades. Those folks got other jobs and never came back. Okay, well, fast forward 14 years. Now we're in a millennial, kind of post-millennial, early Gen Z type worker environment. And that worker is not interested in going out to a job site and swinging a hammer the same way we did 100 years ago. They want to be a part of a mission and a passion and a calling. And they are motivated by different things than a Gen X or a baby boomer was. And so with that as the backstop, there is a nasty, nasty national shortage of workers, both in terms of quality and quantity. And that's not an easy fix. I mean, you got to go back four years to start training that workforce. And so with that generational workforce and labor trend, the only way that we believe you can fill that gap is through technology to take the workforce that you have and supercharge them to be able to do more, better, faster, cheaper, greener, and safer. And so essentially our vision is that if we technology does not replace people, it leverages people to do more with less and to do better at at what human beings do. And so that's really where we see technology as this force enabler, this lever that helps kind of pry loose the stagnation and complacency of, of kind of construction labor. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So when you say it doesn't replace labor, it helps them, it helps the labor force and, and it makes them more efficient. How does that kind of work? Like how do we how do we develop that and how does that kind of all play together? 
So the analogy I use is that the nail gun did not replace the framer. It just replaced the hammer. And so from our perspective, this tool is the next evolution in technology that enables the tradespeople of the US to do more in a given time period. So as an example, if I am a framer and I have a three-man crew, just to frame a house, it might take me eight weeks, depending on the size of the house, depending on the market, et cetera. In that eight weeks, I spent you know 40 hours a week for eight weeks with my crew doing that. Well, when you leverage offsite technology, that can smash down into eight hours. And now I've got seven weeks and six days to either go and work more projects or continue to advance in the project that I'm currently in. And so the way we look at this is when you tap into... Here's another way to look at this. Yes, you could take a dump truck and dump 10,000 car parts in a driveway and say, build a car. It's just not the fastest, most effective, most efficient way to do it. And so when you organize that labor in a factory on an assembly line with all the process being coordinated, you can now do... You know, Toyota is one of our investors. They took us out to the plant. The Camry comes off the line every 57 seconds. Now, there's lots of human beings along the line to help that process happen. But now, all of a sudden, working together, you can drastically increase the cumulative output using technology as a tool, not a replacement for human labor. So how does that work? Because a car, you're able to transport them quite quickly and multiple at a time. Houses, I don't, I don't know if that's the case or how does that typically work? So when people think of construction or prefabrication, offsite construction, industrialized construction, whatever term they're used to, most of the time, people's perception is a mobile home. So large kind of double wide house that has kind of a low income stigma and is quite transitory in nature. So that while that is a form of prefabrication, that is not what we talk about. So the way that we do this is we take an advanced software. The analogy I use is you send our software a picture of the Death Star or a Jeep Wrangler or whatever it is. And then it will tell you and digest it. And out the backside, it will tell you, hey, you need that this number of black Lego bricks or yellow Lego bricks, or you need four tires. Or, and then all of a sudden, out comes a kit of parts that can be assembled very, very quickly. Mm. And so one of the key unlocks here is when we do that, that software kicks out a series of files out to our floor, our factory assembly line. And we, we manufacture more like an automotive line down a single line. And we do that as 2D panels rather than a volumetric brick. And so back to your question about shipping, what happens is each of these 2D components as panels gets shipped vertically on the back of a truck, but there's very little air inside. It's tremendously dense because it's all kind of like Ikea furniture. It comes heavy and like a brick because they, you know, they put the top and the bottom and all the shelving all together. And it's just like, oh, smokes, this is heavy. Same kind of thing in construction so that when you get to the job site, the crane's waiting, it just picks a panel, sets it, picks a panel, sets it. And in so doing, you have nearly unlimited customization because the software digested the complexity, but manufactured it simply. I see. And so then how about the material aspect of it? Does that come into play at all Like uh, in terms of the supply chain and reducing the costs and efficiencies of being able to build it in this environment? It does. So the vast majority of the raw material cost and the raw material consumption that goes into a home is timber, as most people know. But think about this from an efficiency perspective. You've got a mill that's co-located to the forest oftentimes, and then it's sending a bunch of truckloads of lumber to all kinds of different job sites. What we do is aggregate all of that, and it just is a trunk line directly to the factory, whether that's truck or train. And now you're just unloading massive quantities of lumber directly in one spot. And then there's less trips back and forth to Home Depot and you know miscommunications, et cetera. So that it allows for essentially a more assembly line mindset all the way back to the tree that that it was cut from. 
And so in order to actually keep up with the speed and production, that is one of the efficiencies is, is really starting to think about the home as a product rather than the home as a fragmented collection of services. So are you dealing typically with the consumer themselves, the home buyers, or are you dealing with the construction crew who are actually going to build it and put it together? Most of the time, it's usually working with the builder, the builder developer and or the installer at the job site. And the ultimately what we believe is, I don't actually want to be a builder per se. I want to be kind of a high-end, high-tech company that's building the technology that enables builders. And so in doing that, I stay focused on what I do really well while they can stay focused at the job site. And so when we talk about construction, we talk about homes. Generally, our sweet spot is ADUs, single families, multifamilies up into apartment buildings. So really light timber-based construction, four or five stories and below. That slice of the market is our sweet spot. It's not vertical skyscrapers. It's not you know housing in Mexico or Canada or Europe. It's really just focusing on the American economy right now. Got it. With this technology, if you're looking at the entire environment and you know the the deficit and the housing, how quickly are we able to? If we were to think about like from the time that we actually put, need and want to choose what type of um, product or house you want to build, from that time when we decide on that to the time where it's being built and constructed to the finish line, compare that to like a typical uh, construction build, like how long would that process take? My vision is that our customers consistently by the, by the end of the decade are everywhere around the country, 30 days from permits to keys. So then the time it takes you to close out your lease on an apartment building you could have construction done in that time frame. And to give you an exact frame of reference, it's probably 10 or 15 times that in terms of average length right now. And that's what we should think about. It's like I go to a dealership, I buy a car, I expect it to be delivered to me in a week or two weeks or three weeks. I would never buy a car and then just say, oh yeah, by the way, it's not going to show up for 12 months and the price tag waits at the end. You don't get an upfront price. Like That's just not how we think of consumer goods. So that's the mindset shift that's going to take some time. And I expect it to be you know years in the making, but that's where we will need to be as a society by 2030. What do you think about the affordability of it? Does it cut down the cost to make it more affordable to the average consumers to be able to purchase something like this instead of having to build it up the traditional path? Absolutely. One of the biggest, so there's there's several sources of cost and inefficiency that go into a build, but the most alarming trend is is the cost of labor. And that's partly driven by scarcity. In other words, there aren't that many workers. That's also partially driven by inflation. And then it becomes a virtuous cycle. The more housing costs go up, the more you need to pay those workers to live in that area. And then those workers then have to charge more, which means all of a sudden housing prices go up. And so it just spins itself into a circle. Whereas our approach is really trying to offset and augment that labor but then also reducing the material waste, optimizing and kind of bulk purchasing. And so really trying to drive that price point down, but still give the customer the customization. Because if, if somebody wants to build a really expensive house in Huntington Beach versus they want to build a really, really cheap house inside you know, a less expensive neighborhood in LA, at the end of the day, the way that you build that home is generally very, very similar. It just kind of depends on you know, the fit and finishes and the cost of the land and, and you know, all the, like, uh, the trappings of the house. Got it. So for you, as you've been building up Agoras and, and your company, you know what has been the biggest challenge for you to be able to accomplish your goals and work towards your mission of ha- having to overcome the housing deficit that we have in this country? I'm going to steal it. But I think one asked one time, I think it was Elon Musk and Warren Buffett were asked, hey, what's the number one secret to success? Focus. And this is where we're not 
we're not as good as we want to be or need to be because in construction, there are so many shiny objects that it's easy to get distracted with, oh, we could innovate that and we could solve that problem. And it's massive. And so our counter to that is trying to stay laser focused on the Amazon model. If we can distribute books really, really well, then it's easy to throw in DVDs. It's easy to throw in CDs and kids clothes and eventually groceries. And then pretty soon we can start to have this vertically integrated stack that's adding a lot of value. But if we do not stay focused, it's like trying to boil the ocean. It's an exercise in futility. Are there any other hurdles and challenges in overcoming the market to be able to mass produce these types of housing and you know get it accepted widely? Oh, there are plenty of hurdles. <laughs> I jokingly call it death by a thousand paper cuts. No one of the hurdles is that big a deal, but there is a metric ton of them. I would say the biggest challenge externally is a mindset shift. And so because construction is so big, and because it has so much inertia and, and tends to be complacent, I think there is a reluctance to adopt new technology because to a certain extent, it threatens it threatens kind of the status quo. And, and a lot of people just don't like deviating from the status quo. I think the other part of it is it's scary and it's unknown. And there has not been enough of a track record yet where people can see it and look at it and drive down the street and go, holy smokes, that was a lot. Now there's a house there. Like that was yesterday. How'd that happen? And so I think as, those, as more and more of those conversations start to happen, I believe it's a foregone conclusion where as younger buyers come of home buying age, we've gotten used to microwaves and on-demand data on our phones. We are not going to put up with a 12 to 18 month lead time on something when other people and products out there allow us to have that right away. So what is next for you and your company? I mean, you have so much going on, but what's your next focus? The next focus is the same as yesterday, and it's going to be the same tomorrow, which is be brilliant at the basics. Focus on getting your core technology right. We are not at risk of housing going away. It's not a fad. Sleeping out of the rain is not going out of style. So we know there's a big delta. We know it's not going to go away. So don't worry about the customer or the market just yet. That problem is still there. We have got to build a scalable foundation so that we can be building hundreds of thousands of homes as quickly as possible, not just, oh, cool, I moved the needle in my one zip code. Like This is a national problem. And so as you try and build a juggernaut, the key step is you've got to build outstanding foundations. So as much as it's not the sexiest and the most glamorous, a lot of what's next is just focus on the operational details, put out one fire, one paper cut at a time. And how has real estate impacted your life so far? I think in many ways, my experience with real estate mirrors a lot of other people, which is your first time in real estate is oftentimes the first time you build a home or you buy a home, excuse me. And then in so doing, you realize that, holy smokes, this is one of the greatest wealth generators for a blue collar middle-class person in the country. And so a lot of it has just kind of been learning on the fly. I'm like, holy smokes, I have made more money in my house than I have in my savings account or even the jobs that I've worked. And it just happened while I was living it and raising my kids there. And so that's, it's simple and it sounds kind of trite, but like that's been my experience with real estate. And then of course you start to get into investing and you add on, but like your first salvo is, holy smokes, buying a home is not just, this is mine. It's also a source of wealth generation. And this is one of the things that gets me fired up about trying to do this for a company, because the challenge I see for society over the next 10 years is with interest rates potentially on the rise and home prices up. I see a lot more renting in people's future and a lot less home buying. And to me, that is not good for society overall. And that that's really counter to the American dream and counter to the greatest tool for people to change their wealth trajectory over time. 
And if there was one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? It would be that while while it seems scary from the outside, at the end of the day, it's not nearly as hard as, as your listeners might think. Whatever their experience is, the best way to do it is to just jump right in with both feet. You are smart enough. You can figure this out. Many people have gone before us and many people will come after us learning to make money and tackle the real estate nuts. Why not just jump in? Best way to learn is, is, uh, is, is doing it and getting in the ring yourself. Awesome. Well, Garrett, I appreciate coming on the show and sharing a little bit about what you're doing and, and trying to tackle this massive issue that we have in the country. So uh, it's a big problem that we have out there. So somebody's got to take care of it. <laughs> My pleasure. It, uh, it takes a village to, uh, to, to raise a startup. And this is a problem that's going to take a lot of people. So I'm not doing it alone. we got a great team. We need great customers, partners, innovators. It's going to be a heavy lift, but it's a worthwhile pursuit of our time. And so Garrett, if our listeners want to find out more about what you're doing and follow your journey, where's the best place that they can go? Easiest way is either our website so they can see what we're up to, uh, listen to podcasts, check news articles, whatever, or they want to connect with me directly, just reach out to me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, DM me, say, Hey, here's what I've got going on. I'm interested to learn more. I've got a project or you know, whatever it is. Hey, I want to come work for you, whatever that looks like. Always looking to connect with like-minded folks that are passionate about solving the housing crisis. Awesome. Thanks so much again, Garrett. Thanks, Eileen. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.